Thank you for listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit our website, centurybaptist.org, or download the Century Baptist Church app. Scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 10. I'll give you a second to turn there if you're not there already. We'll be reading verses 16 all the way to 33 of Matthew chapter 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute in in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not, be, will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven." The Word of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you have revealed yourself to us, the great invisible God, made us your children, and thank you for the power of your Word through which we are saved, through which we are transformed in the image of your Son, and so we come in faith, gathered as your body, to sit under the teaching of your Word, that you might do that, continue that in us today, that you might even raise some to new life, that you would move us all to a greater expression of worship and obedience. And so, Father, to that end, may the words of Pastor Paul's mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Ecclesia. A coach is a person who instructs, who teaches, and who directs a performer or a team. There are coaches for anything and everything nowadays. You can get a coach for exercise, for finances, for life, for career, for nutrition, and the list goes on. A coach is an asset to individuals developing their ability and their skill, their competitive acumen in their field discipline, or sport. And coaches do a wide array of things 
assisting their players, and getting the most out of their talent, their intellect, and their physicality. Now, most often we associate coaches and coaching with athletes and sports. And a coach will know his subject matter and the objective. They'll break down the objective to identify the necessary skills, plan and implement schemes, and study the elements of competition and the opposition so that there is no fear when it's time to perform. An excellent coach invests himself or herself into the lives of those he is coaching. And in getting to know the players, will develop with them their greatest potential by encouraging them, by challenging them beyond what they believe they are capable of and their ability that they have. Understanding that this is a process of development over time and not immediate results, a coach is committed to that role and responsibility of coaching. But more than that, to the development of his players as athletes and individuals. A great coach is never satisfied. He's continually striving for improvement while affirming progress, never resting on previous accomplishment. Regardless of the opponent or the circumstances, a great coach will instill confidence in his team to compete at peak performance. At times, teams will do things which appear improbable and with courageous confidence will accomplish that which seems impossible. I was 12 years old when it all happened. What no one believed was possible because for 20 years, the professionals had taken down all of the amateurs. And then there was that night in Lake Placid where a ragtag group of amateurs, college hockey players, came together against the mighty and powerful Soviet Union. Herb Brooks was the coach, and he made this speech prior to the game. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them ten times, they'd probably win nine. But not this game. Not tonight. Tonight we skate with them. Tonight we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight we are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players, every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great team the Soviets have. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. And if you're probably at least my age, which you need to be to remember that, you know that they went out and in that semifinal game pulled off one of the greatest upsets in all of sports history, let alone Olympic hockey. And then in the final game, the U.S. was to face Finland. And if you know anything or read anything about Herb Brooks, you know here was a guy who was never satisfied. And so before that game, he stated an encouraging message to his players that you were born to be a player, you were meant to be here, this moment is yours. 
The USA hockey team went out and took the gold medal at the 1980 Winter Olympics. In talking with Coach Brooks following that uh, success, the following was stated by him. And I quote, They were really mentally tough and goal-oriented. Speaking of his players. They came from all different walks of life, many having competed against one another, but they came together and grew to be a real close team. I pushed this team very hard. I mean, I really pushed them. But they had the ability to answer the bell. We adopted a different style of play, a more hybrid style of play, and the players had a lot of fun playing it. We were a fast, creative team that played extremely disciplined without the puck. Throughout the Olympics, they had great resiliency about them. I mean, they came from behind six or seven times to win. They just kept moving and working and digging. And Coach Brooks took this team that, from my reading, I understand the Olympic officials were going, why are you keeping those guys? But Coach Brooks had a plan, and his plan worked quite well. As followers of Jesus, we have a coach. His name's Jesus. And he took a group of 12 from all different walks of life, some who had competed against each other in different ways, if you will, but they came together to be a really close team. And because of what they did back in the first century, you and I are here this morning gathered as the ecclesia, the church that Jesus built. So as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew, we're in chapter 10 this morning, where Jesus has called his disciples in verses 1 to 4. He's commissioned them for a mission of going to the lost sheep of Israel in verses 5 through 8. And then in verses 9 through the rest of chapter 10, Jesus is instructing and coaching his disciples for the mission for which he is sending them. And so I invite you to uh, reopen your Bibles if you close them or or uh, grab a pew Bible and open it to Matthew chapter 10. If you grab a pew Bible, it's page 815. Page 815 in the thick pew Bible. If you happen to find one of the thin pew Bibles, uh, page 765. 765 in the thin version, 815 in the thicker version. So we're going to begin today in verse 18, noticing this. That Jesus, as a coach, is instructing his disciples. He's exhorting and encouraging them and explaining his faithful support of them and to them. And as we study this passage, we're going we're to realize that a disciple of Jesus can have courageous confidence for the mission which Jesus has called him to do. As Jesus continued to coach his disciples in verses 16 through 31... We see this section as a bad news, good news set of instructions. Jesus starts with the bad news in verses 16 through 25. He does not tell the disciples that this is going to be continual or constantly their experience. But Jesus is telling them what they can expect with certainty as they go out on mission to the lost sheep of Israel 
to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. The mission on which Jesus is sending them is hard. There's no other way to put it. The 12 disciples can expect that trouble will be theirs, persecution will come, rejection will face them, and suffering will be what they know. Living in obedience to Jesus will bring problems with others into our path. It'll bring problems with religious leaders. It'll bring problems with the government and governmental leaders. It'll bring difficulties within families. And most definitely, it will bring harassment, intimidation, and reproductions, or <laughs> reproductions, repercussions from our culture. It will reproduce because culture reproduces those harassments and intimidations continually against the message of Jesus. Verse 16, Jesus says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus made it very clear. Hey, guys, you're going into a place you're not welcome. You're going into a place where you are going to be attacked. You are unwanted guests. Prior to this, Jesus has told his disciples in verses 9 through 15, he said, as you go, he said, look for the person of peace. As you go, do your homework, vet the people, do research, make sure that the place to which you are going to stay is going to be welcoming of you. And then he said to them, and you know, the worst that's going to happen is they're not going to welcome you, and if they don't welcome you, then, then leave there. Now he says, uh, as you go, here's the deal, guys. You're going to sheep in the midst of wolves. And what's going to happen to you is that you're going to face arrest and you're going to be brought before the Jewish courts. The fact that you will be rejected is a fact. It's not conjecture. It's not speculation. You need, you disciples, you need to be aware and you need to be prepared for it because it is going to happen to each one of you. And Jesus identified those religious leaders there in verse 17 as that first group with which his disciples would encounter persecution. The second group that Jesus identifies is the government even governors and kings. Some of Jesus' disciples are going to encounter higher levels of authority as they preach and minister in the name of Jesus. And there in verse 18, Jesus says, And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. When the disciples go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, their message and their ministry is going to land them before governors and kings. It's guaranteed. It will happen. Jesus said, and it's going to happen for my sake. It's going to happen on account of me. So here's a timeless truth principle that we know from this text. If we go out, and as we go out and preach the gospel, as we go out and share Jesus Christ with others... We will face persecution if we are doing it. On account of Jesus, just by stating his name, persecution is going to come. Rejection will be ours. He's telling the disciples here, the Jews are going to reject you and the Gentiles are going to re reject you. And this actually points to the fact there's, there's, there's a, a wider, broader meaning that Jesus is now speaking to 
in this, in this part of Scripture through the, through the end of this chapter. And he's telling his disciples here that this is going to be true on, on this mission, but not just on this mission. This is going to be true as you go out on future missions, and this is going to be true for all the disciples of Jesus in centuries and generations to come. While they, verse 19, but when they hand you over. While the they in verse 19 is not exactly clear, we understand it to be the the Jewish leaders, those who are opposed to Jesus. And as we continue through the book of Matthew, we will see more starkly how much the religious leaders were opposed to Jesus. And it's them that Jesus says, they're going to hand you over those disciples to the Gentiles, Gentile authorities. This happened to the Apostle Paul in uh, Acts chapters 24, 25, and 26. He was handed over to a couple of governors, Felix and Festus, and to King Agrippa. And so we have this example of what Jesus means when he states there, do not worry about, what you, about how or what you are to say. And the term that is used, worry there, is the same that we get and we see in Philippians 4, 6, where it says, do not be anxious, or do not worry, or be anxious for nothing. So Jesus is telling his disciples, no need for anxiety, no need for concern. At the time of need, on that, in that occasion, at the specific hour, the Spirit of your Father will speak to you and will give you the words to say. Don't need to worry about it. Your heavenly Father has you. It's a little bit interesting that Matthew refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of our Father here. But it makes a lot of sense because Father is that that term of endearment uh, for for a child, that Abba, that, that Daddy term. And He has just given them and is in the midst of giving them a whole bunch of not great news. Can we say it that way? I mean, here's what you're going to face. And so as he says, by the way, you're going to be in, in front of religious councils. Oh, but not only that, you're going to be in, in front of government authorities. Guys, don't worry. Your Heavenly Father has you. He's got you. He'll give you what to say. He'll give you the how and when to speak. Now, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is the difference between Jesus' disciples in Matthew chapter 10 and a disciple in the 21st century. Jesus' disciples in Matthew chapter 10, who he refers to apostles, had available to themselves the scrolls of the Old Testament and the oral teachings of, of Jesus. That's all they had. They didn't have anything written at this point. They just had the oral teachings of Jesus. They didn't have access to the New Testament because they're living it in real life. Today, you and I, as Jesus' disciples, we've got the Old Testament, we've got the words of Jesus in the four Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament, and we've got the entire New Testament which is why it is so vital for you and I to be in the Word of God and to know what the Word of God says. We need to be reading and studying to 
to understand who is Jesus. What is, what is it all that he has said? And what is he calling us to? And who is God and how is he going to take care of us and provide for us? See, Jesus stated in John 16, speaking of the Holy Spirit, that it's the Holy Spirit that will guide you into all truth. It is the Holy Spirit that will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. As Jesus' disciples spent time with him in the flesh, so today you and I must spend time in the Word of God so that when we are brought before religious leaders or government authorities or our family comes at us or culture rises against us, that we can and will speak the truth of God and Jesus by the Holy Spirit, bringing to mind all that God has given us in His Word. The third group of people which will persecute and reject Jesus' disciples as they preach His message and minister in His name will be family. Now next week we're going to look at how complete loyalty to Jesus can and will compete with the closest relationships that we have and that we can know, that of our family. But here Jesus states a future reality for His followers as they obediently work in His harvest fields. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. The Jews are going to hand over Jesus' disciples to the religious courts and synagogues. In the same manner, brother will hand over, will betray brother. Will hand over betray, verses 17, 19, and 21, all the same word, all the same meaning. And that is the same word that is used of Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. So following Jesus in obedience to his teachings, living according to his commands, and obeying his call in your life, will divide family relationships, will divide families deeply, and in some cases will divide them permanently. Then Jesus states the final group to persecute and reject the disciples. And he says, it's all. Verse 22, you will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. That fourth group to be persecuted and rejected is simply all. All men, all kinds of men and women are going to hate you because you follow me. Jesus says. Just by the sheer fact that you've associated yourself with Jesus' name is going to bring hate from all kinds of people. You're going to be de detested by individuals. You're going to be detested by groups because you claim the name of Jesus Christ as your Savior and you live your life in submission to His authority over you. You can expect it. Jesus said, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. To endure means to stand firm, to hold one's ground in the midst of this persecution. And to hold one's ground when? To the end. Most likely referring to the end of the age, but is also going to include the moment of death for those who do not live to see the return of Christ. It is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. 
Saved here does not mean the preservation of physical life. And we know that because we know that there have been some believers who have been martyred for their faith. So that is not what Jesus is meaning here. These words of Jesus are actually meant to be an encouragement and not not a warning. Because, see, it's only on the other side of death that a follower of Christ will receive his reward of faithfulness. So this isn't about the possible loss of one's eternal salvation. Rather, it is an exhortation to continue to persevere in the midst of persecution, which seems unbearable, because you know that even though they can kill the body, they cannot kill the soul. We'll see that here in a few, in a few moments in verse 28. For the soul is eternally saved. So here's what it means for you and me. If you're going to be outspoken for Jesus... If you're going to live on mission for him, persecution is going to come from the religious establishment and the religious people. It's going to come from the government. It's going to come from family, and it's going to come from culture or all kinds of people. And so then Jesus continues with another reality that his disciples need to understand and face in verse 23. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Whenever they persecute you means this. This is an ongoing, linear, and repetitive reality. You, as a follower of Jesus Christ, get used to it. You're going to be persecuted, not just once, not just twice. It's going to be continual. If you're going to live your life obedient to what your Heavenly Father has called you to do by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you will be persecuted. And Jesus says, when that persecution comes, flee. It's actually a command. Get out of there. Run away. Escape. Avoid the danger. Avoid the hostility of the people. When you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next city. There's two realities to this command. First is, don't stay there to continually be persecuted and rejected. Sometimes it's like people just want to go, oh, look how rough and how tough it is as they stay in the situation. But look how devout I am as I continually get to be beaten up by others. Jesus is telling them here, he says, don't do it. If they've rejected my message, if they've rejected my ministry, go on to the next city. Get out of there. Don't waste your time and energy bringing us to the second reality. Just because you're persecuted in one city doesn't mean you get to quit. The mission that Jesus sends us on isn't like, oh, well, I went and I tried, and uh, they rejected you, so I guess I'm done. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, you go on to the next city. You go on into the next village. You continue to do ministry. For, Jesus continues in verse 23, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now, if you've studied Scripture at all, and over time, different passages, different books or whatever, you will know that there, you will inevitably come upon passages, verses, parts of Scripture where it just causes you to scratch your head and you're studying and you're going, you're looking at what scholars have had to say. You're looking at the grammar and how it's phrased and put together. You're looking at the context of where the passage is. You're looking at, you're reading commentaries and you're, you're gathering all the information that you can and you're going, like, wow, um, there is not one soul agreed upon way in which to interpret this. This is one of those 
passages of Scripture in the Gospel of Matthew. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Bible scholars acknowledge that this statement is one of the most difficult to interpret in Matthew's Gospel. There are many variations of proposed solutions to this statement. But there does seem to be a basic truth that we can extract with a high degree of confidence from this, from this point that Jesus is making here, and it's this. There is going to be a continual and enduring hardening of heart of the Jews against the gospel of Jesus Christ that is going to last all the way up until the second coming of Jesus. Therefore, Christ will return before his followers, his disciples, will have fully evangelized the Jews. However, our mission is to make disciples of all nations. Therefore, obedience to Jesus in working in the Lord's harvest field includes the Jewish people throughout the entire church age. Then Jesus says in verse 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave his master. Simply put, how the teacher is being treated, the student can expect to be be treated no better. Maybe worse, but no better. However, the master is treated, the slave can expect to be treated no better. And so Jesus says, if they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Just back in chapter 9, verse 34, where Jesus cast out a demon, the religious leaders attributed that ability that Jesus had to the work of Satan, in essence saying, oh, Jesus is working for Satan. Now, His disciples would remember that very well. They were there. And so they would understand this in the context in which Jesus is saying this. And they would understand that, okay, if we go out, and remember, Jesus gave his authority to the disciples to do one of the things to do that they were commanded to do is to cast out demons. We can expect that the religious leaders are going to do the same to us. They're going to say, no, we did this by Satan's power. That's quite an accusation. The implication of how much more the members of his household is that how much more certain is the persecution going to come to those who follow Jesus? See, biblically, there's no exemption from persecution. As a result, those who have never experienced persecution possibly have not sufficiently witnessed to their faith. Now, that doesn't mean we're to go looking to be persecuted. Rather, it means that we are to live obediently to Jesus' call and commission on our life. And when we do, we're going to face the same insults that Jesus and his disciples faced. In this section of verses from 16 to, to 31, it was bad news and good news. And now Jesus comes to that good news in verse 26. He, he offers them comfort. And he offers them encouragement. 
and that their well-being is assured and is to be guaranteed. And he starts out by saying to them, Therefore, do not fear them. The them refers to the persecutors in verse 23. And notice the focus that Jesus places on encouragement now. In verses 26, 28, and 31, he commands his disciples, Do not fear those who persecute you. Because what he has just told them most likely would elicit fear in them. See, a great coach outlines the objective, the scheme, identifies the opposition, and points out how they will attack. And Jesus did that very same thing for his disciples. Now he's instructing and encouraging his followers through reminders of the facts. See, he restates to his twelve to know and to remember his prior teaching. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, which they were with him for on, on the mountainside. He reminds them of the fact of ministry that they had just been alongside Jesus in doing. They watched him and they witnessed all that Jesus did in chapters 8 and 9. And he says, look, there's no need to fear. There's no need to fear because there's coming a judgment, he goes on to say in verse 26, which will reveal all secrets and all realities of the individual's lives who are seeking to persecute you. The truth of the persecutors is going to be made known. It's going to come to light and all are going to be able to see it. Oh, sure, they look powerful. They look like they're in control. They look knowledgeable. There's a day ahead when what has been kept secret will be disclosed and exposed. And then Jesus says, all the things I'm telling you in the dark, or in other words, all the things that I'm telling you in private when it's just, when it's just us together, the 13 of us, he says, speak that in the light. Speak that in public. Let everybody in public know. The things that I teach you when we're, when, when we're away from the crowds, those are the things that I want you to proclaim far and wide. In fact, he says, shout them from the rooftops. Do not fear those, verse 28, who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. So here's the second time Jesus states, do not fear. And this time he reminds his disciples, they can take your body. They can't take your soul. They can't touch your eternality. They can't touch the fact that you are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus says, have fear of the one who can destroy the body and the soul. Hey guys, if you're going to fear anything, fear God, my heavenly Father, Jesus is saying. Your heavenly Father. He's the one. Not only can He destroy your body physically, He can destroy your soul eternally. That's who you need to fear. Not the persecution that rises against you. That's all going to be made, made plain. That's going to be disclosed one day. And then He continues by saying, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And not yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Jesus uses this example of, of the smallest of birds, sparrows. And when you combine two sparrows together, 
it equals one-sixteenth of a daily wage. And Jesus points out that God's care and concern over them is great. He notices when something happens to those sparrows. In fact, Jesus said, God is so big and powerful and all-knowing, he's even numbered the hairs of your head. You see, the point is this. The God who is mighty, the God who is unmatched in all of the universe, is concerned over small and what some would classify as insignificant details. So do not fear, Jesus says a third time, you are more valuable than many sparrows. The encouragement Jesus is giving to his disciples and the encouragement for us today from this text is that you matter to God. He knows who you are. He knows everything about you. He is aware of your situation and he cares for you. Therefore, you don't need to be fearful of those who persecute you. Your God places great value on you. And since God even values the sparrows, who two of them combined are only worth one-sixteenth of a day's wage, since God is, has enough interest in the sparrows, how much more is he going to have interest in your life? How much more is he going to protect you and keep you until the day he calls you to himself? See, a disciple of Jesus can be courageously confident on mission in the Lord's harvest field. Applied to our lives, we are to be obedient to Jesus' call, to his commission, and to his coaching. Therefore, we don't have to fear religious leaders or the religious establishment who persecute you because you preach Jesus Christ, because you live obediently to Scripture, because you minister in his name. And there is a reality to that in America today. Religious leaders, the religious establishment, whomever they are, are saying, look, you got to do this. You need to do this. We're doing this. You need to do this. And yet it seems to be apart from the entirety of what Scripture says came across a document that was signed by over 8,000 Christians, mostly who are uh, religious leaders uh, in theological uh, positions, um, authors, writers. The document, I'm not certain uh, of, of when it was written. My best guess in late 2020 but it's entitled this way. Love your neighbor, get the shot. A Christian statement on science for pandemic times. From the opening paragraph, it says this. We call on all Christians to follow the advice of public health experts and support scientists doing crucial biomedical research on COVID-19. As you go through and read the article, 
I discovered a couple things, some that were a little bit troubling. It appeared they would use Scripture to, out of context to kind of fit what they were trying to say. It also appeared that if you didn't do what they were stating you should do, then you were somehow out of line with Jesus, God, and His will. This was a document that's signed by some people which you may, you may know. I'm just going to share six names. N.T. Wright, Daryl Bach of Dallas Seminary, Phil Vischer of VeggieTales, Kara Powell of the Fuller Youth Institute, Scott McKnight, professor at Northern Seminary, Walter Kim, National Association of Evangelicals. I can tell you that upon seeing the document and signing it, I have not signed it. I will not sign it. Because personally, I don't agree with it. And biblically, I don't agree with it, especially with some of the things that they did in that document. But this is the persecution that if you claim the name of Christ, there will be religious leaders and the religious establishment will rise up and tell you, you're wrong and you need to get in line, Christian. That's the first place that it comes from. The second is the government. So do not fear the government who persecutes you. You know, in the last number of years, we've um, been told that you have a right to assembly and peaceful protest. However, interestingly enough, over the course of the last uh, week and a half or so, um, in just one, il- one illustration is a pro-life advocate by the name of Paul Vaughn, who is the president of Personhood Tennessee. That is a group that advocates for a biblical view of the inalienable dignity of the human uh, of, of humanity. He was arrested at gunpoint by FBI agents at home in front of his children. The indictment is this. The pro-life defendant, quote, engaged in a conspiracy to prevent the clinic from providing, end quote, and patients from receiving abortion services that violated the FACE Act by, quote, using physical obstruction to intimidate and interfere with the clinic's employees and a patient. Yet the event was, uh, end quote, yet the event was mostly pro-life people staging a peaceful sit-in along with hymn singing and praying, and it was so lawful and peaceful that local police let them go after minor misdemeanor charges. But for Paul Vaughn, if convicted, on these federal charges from the current federal administration, he will face up to 11 years in prison, three years supervised release, and fines up to $350,000. So an interview with him this past week, and he is a, a man from that interview that is saying, I'm trusting in my Heavenly Father to give me the words to say and to care for me throughout this ordeal. Number three, so you do not fear when your, family, uh, your family when they persecute you. Well, more about that next week. Number four, do not fear all people, or in essence, the culture who persecutes you. For preaching Jesus, living obediently to Scripture, and ministering in the name of Jesus. Our children are at stake in our society. And you know it, 
I believe, as well as I do. There are agendas that are being thrown at our most the ones who are least able to help themselves are children. And so our, whether it's government, school boards, organizations, they're saying, look, there is an agenda that we have for your children and parents, get out of the way. And if you try to get in our way, we are going to suppress you as best we can. Surrounding the transgender issue in our nation, our, our government response, and I'm, I'm going back to, to, to government here, um, because this was, to me, one of the most egregious uh, things that I've, I've seen done. The government response uh, and advocacy of, of gender dysphoria and, and, and fluidity uh, made, made this affirmation, uh, I believe it was back in March, when they said, Our entire administration sees you for what you are, made in the image of God and deserving of dignity, respect, and support. And you know what? That sounds really good. But the problem I have as a follower of Jesus Christ, as one who adheres to the word of God, is the fact that they took a phrase, ripped it completely out of context of what God is saying to us. Yes, we are made in the image of God. In fact, let me, let me finish that and what should have been stated at this time. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, we can get the Word of God to say pretty much whatever we want it to say. And Jesus is telling us, those of us who are His disciples in the 21st century, the same as He told His disciples in the 1st century, look, persecution is going to come. You're going to claim my name? You're going to go on the mission that I'm asking you to go on? You're going to follow the instructions that I give to you? Remember this instruction. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Jesus has prepared, instructed, and encouraged his disciples for the mission. Therefore, a disciple of Jesus can be courageously confident on the mission in the Lord's harvest field, even though persecution is going to come when we stand up and when we preach and teach the things that Jesus would have us do as are outlined for us in Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word, what we know is that we are living in a time not unlike the time the disciples of Jesus lived in. There will be persecution. There will be rejection. And it is going to come from the religious establishment. It's going to come from government. It's going to come from family. It's going to come from all people. It's going to come from culture. So God, may we know and may we be confident and certain and secure of the truth that Jesus tells us that we don't have to fear those who can kill the body but cannot touch the soul because you have us, you care for us, and you will protect us. 
So strengthen us as we leave here, going out into a deep, dark world that hates you to shine light, to bring hope, to offer truth in the midst of coming peacefully. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.